Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I mentioned that rock music was equal parts music and social movement. This was a totally new event for music. In earlier episodes, we've seen how jazz was borrowed by the U.S. government for global PR purposes. And of course, music has always given a voice to the hopes and dreams, hurts and fears of people everywhere. But this was something totally different. Ever since the 1950s, we've never been sure whether art imitates life or life imitates art. The most dramatic examples were still in the future, but it started in the 50s, and I've wondered why then and not some other time. I think we need to look at the 1950s together for a few minutes and see if maybe we can't figure out why that might be. See somewhere waiting for me My lover stands on golden sands And watches the ships that go sailing somewhere Rock and roll was a youth movement And in the 50s, family life was changing Husbands came home from World War II having witnessed and participated in some of the most awful events in human history. With the sacrifice and grief and horror behind them, they wanted to come home and forget the war and enjoy what they'd fought so hard for. Being the only industrialized nation not to have been blown to smithereens, our economy was totally ready to meet the needs of everyone. Money poured into the U.S., and these were boom times. Baby boom, marriage boom, housing boom, with money mostly a non-issue, families, at least families that were lucky enough to be white, were stable and intact. Children were the center of attention. Moms stayed home, or if they worked, they had part-time jobs, and they still had plenty of time for their families and motherly duties. When she did work, mom's money was used to buy more for the kids, or to help the family afford a bigger, nicer house. Also, the Great Depression was still visible in people's rearview mirrors. And holding on to financial stability was, of course, a major motivator, too. Two-income families also created a large middle class. Another first. Father always knew best. He was the breadwinner. He was the one to dole out sage advice and, when needed, could pull out his can of whoop-ass as mom warned, wait till your father gets home, the typical white family had plenty of money. And with the support of VA loans, they found it easy to move to the suburbs and buy ready-made, brand-new homes. Little box on the hillside little boxes made of ticky tacky little boxes on the hillside little boxes all the same there's a pink one and a green one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same the same wasn't true for other families though 
So while Mr. and Mrs. White moved out to the suburbs, the cities became concentrations of left-behind black families, and with the tax base cut so deeply, a lot of residential areas in those cities slowly slipped into decades of decay, and the people left to live in them began to know and now experience a new kind of segregation and financial hardship. And drink their martinis dry, and they all have pretty children, and the children go to school, and the children go to summer camp, and then to the university where they are put in boxes, and they come out all the same. And the boys go into business and marry and raise a family in boxes made of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. There's a pink one and a green one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. Parents doted on their kids, and they wanted them to have more fun and be more comfortable than they'd had it during the Depression in the supply rationing years of World War II. Oh, life could be a dream If I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream, sweetheart Hello, hello again Shaboom and hope we'll meet again Girls were raised to be good little wives Not many went to college and if they did it was mostly to find the right young man to marry Career planning for girls was strictly a plan B thing in the case other options didn't work out. The boys were raised to be winners. This meant excelling in school, sports, going to college. They were expected to have a mischievous side. After all, you know, boys will be boys. They were expected to stake out what they wanted in life and take it. The worst of these kids became little mini Brett Kavanaugh's. Dr. Spock advised new parents to give their kids lots of physical affection, feed their egos, encourage their individuality. No need to worry about spoiling the kids. This mass consumption makes you the most powerful giant in the land. And the money you earn gives you the purchasing power that makes you a real giant. What do you know? So I'm a giant. Uh-oh. Looks like you'll have to apply a little of that important purchasing power. But when Ed goes to buy the brush he needs, just give him a chance. And like most of us, he'll buy a lot of other things which couldn't be called exactly essential. With plenty of money and you In spite of the worry that money brings Just a little filthy lucre buys a lot of things So overly permissive parents were creating an entire generation of kids that never knew hardship or lacked for anything. 
These years gave birth to American consumerism. It was a 180 degree swing from the 19th century values of doing for yourself, self control, and saving money. We've never been able to shake it since then. Americans were totally hypnotized by the artful schmooze that advertisers surrounded them with. More than anything, TV was a source of magical incantations that got us to spend more and more on needs we never had, for things we never wanted, and ultimately only made us more unhappy. A nation of independent, sensible Yankees had been hocus pocused into a nation of buy now, pay later, status craving, social climbing. Salivating Pavlov's dogs panting after every imaginable thing under the sun. That's America to me. This was the era ushered in with the keeping up with the Joneses' neurosis we're still plagued with. Our neighbors and our friends told us what kind of furniture to buy, what kind of car to drive, what kind of music to like, what kind of political opinions to have, in short, how to think and live. White, spoiled suburban teens became petulant rebels and the racial and economic segregation was creating future racial tensions between people who understood each other even less than before. And now... Walt Disney will step forward to read the dedication of Disneyland. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past. And here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. Thank you. Unconditional surrender. The screen star has come for a four-day, ten-show tour of the front. Marilyn proves that there's nothing drab about G.I. slacks and shirt, depending on how you look at it, as she heads for her first performance. 13,000 Marines move it up as a now glamorous Marilyn steps front and center, while MPs have their hands full. Having the time of her life, Marilyn wriggles her way into the hearts of the Leathernecks. Coyly, she admits, I've never seen so many men in all my life. Fat boy, Marilyn must come and go, and Korea, for the G.I.s, can never be the same. 
living in their safe little suburban havens. Families were ginning out the world's first ever teenage culture. They had spending power that youth of that age had never collectively enjoyed before. Well, you heard the story of the hot rod race that fatal day when the Ford and the Mercury went out to play. Well, this is the inside story, and I'm here to say I was a kid that was driving that Model A. It's got a Lincoln motor, and it's really souped up, but that Model A body makes it look like a pub. It's got 12 cylinders, uses them all with an overdrive that just won't stall. Got a four-barrel carbon, dual exhaust, four 11 gears, so can really get lost. Got safety tubes, and I'm not scared. The brakes are good, and the tires are fair. But parents who were enjoying this age of opulence and teens making their own money, teens who owned their own cars was pretty commonplace. Cars gave teens more freedom than ever, and a place where a teen couple could go to be alone, out of sight of moms and dads. Cars did begin changing the no-sex-before-marriage values their parents had grown up with. anthropologist once defined the average teenager as someone who's better prepared for a zombie apocalypse than tomorrow's math test. Is it any wonder, with so much social change going on, that by the 1950s the world experienced the arrival of an entirely new kind of adolescent, the world's first ever generation of true teenagers. Before then, American adolescents didn't have the luxury to roll around in that kind of extended childhood. Instead, they'd traditionally gone to work to help support their families or to start one of their own. The nation needed a holding tank to keep these new specimens out of trouble. So high school became an entire world unto itself, and teens developed their own speech patterns and their own clothing styles, beliefs, hobbies, and social rules, just like they have now, but in the 50s, this was all new. The nice little boys and girls who had grown up in their starched white dresses and little suits and ties grew into free-minded, pleasure-centered little rebels. Compared to what had come before, but nothing like the next generations, missing from the mix was the binge-drinking, drug use, and sexual abandon. In the 50s, most teens were shy little virgins. As pampered as the white kids were, most of them did have part-time jobs. Unlike what was happening in the cities, the kids in the burbs earned money for their own use. Add weekly allowance money, and that made them a heavily ad-targeted group. Another new trend in the 50s.
fair, an eerie sight, for my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, in a time and culture where there was so much blurring between traditional reality and the fiction that ad agencies and recently developed TV were creating, it's no surprise that the movies suddenly went technicolor with films catering to purely teen audiences. Like their cars, teens loved the privacy that dark theaters and drive-ins could provide. Movie producers smelled teen money and quickly started cookie-cutting entire catalogs of teen flicks like High School Confidential, Blackboard Jungle, Teen Rebel, The Wild One, and Rebel Without a Cause. These were the best of the lot. And then there were the Elvis, Frankie Avalon, and Annette Funicello films that quickly followed. And not bad unless you like movies with a plot. In an anxious Cold War age, where teens watched duck and cover films in classrooms for practical tips on how to survive a Russian nuclear attack, just hide under your desk, everything's gonna be okay. Every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Hey, Bert, come on out and meet all these nice people, please. All right, we really can't blame you. You see, Bert is a very, very careful fellow. When there's danger, this is the way he keeps from being hurt. Sometimes it even saves his life. That's why these children are practicing to duck and cover just as you do in your school. We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it, just as we are ready for many other dangers that are around us all the time. Fire is a danger. It can burn whole buildings if someone is careless. But we are ready for fires. We have a fine fire department to put out the fire, and you have fire drills in your school so you know what to do. Now, we must be ready for a new danger. The atomic bomb. First, you have to know what happens when an atomic bomb explodes. You will know when it comes. We hope it never comes, but we must get ready. It looks something like this. There is a bright flash, brighter than the sun, brighter than anything you've ever seen. If you are not ready and did not know what to do, it could hurt you in different ways. It could knock you down hard or throw you against a tree or a wall. It is such a big explosion it can smash in buildings and knock signboards over and break windows all over town. But if you duck and cover like Bert, you will be much safer. To the Hollywood film producers, public anxiety and primal fear always smell like cash. So riding the Cold War trend, the studios obliged teen fears by cranking out films about giant radioactive mutant ants and titles like The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms 
It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. A one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater sure looks strange to me. One-eyed. Them, a film about atomically mutated spiders come to destroy mankind. The creature with the atom brain, in which an ex-Nazi scientist uses radio-controlled zombies to return a mobster to power. Now, now, wait a minute. Hold on. Isn't that what's happening now, since Trump keeps threatening to run for office again? Or The Brain Eaters, where an infestation of parasites from the center of the earth take over the minds of the townspeople. Hmm. Actually, I think maybe this was the original inspiration for Fox News. And since we're talking about how Grandma and Grandpa dated back in the 50s, in those long time ago days before Gramps' hair fell out, let's take a little closer look, shall we? One all day. I overslept. Look, I need your help. I have to ask Lorraine out, but I don't know how to do it. All right, okay, listen, keep your pants on. Lorraine out, that he'd melt my brain. Yeah, well, uh, let's, let's just keep this brain-melting stuff to ourselves, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, okay. Right, there she is, George. You know what to say. Don't oh, you say anything, George. Say, well, whatever's natural. Well, the first thing that comes into your mind. Nothing's coming to my mind. Jesus, George, it was a wonder I was even born. What? What? Nothing, nothing. Nothing. Look, tell her destiny brought you together. Tell her that she is the most beautiful girl you've ever seen in the world. Girls like that stuff. So let's make like Marty McFly and hop into our DeLorean time machine. Set the controls for 1955, okay, Doc? It's time for a sock hop. A sock hop, by the way, was a school dance on the gym floor and everybody had to take off their shoes so as not to scuff up the floorboards. If it wasn't at the sock hop, you could see a flutter bum, a guy, out with his classy chassis, his girlfriend, at a pizza or ice cream parlor, the drive-ins, bowling alleys, coffee houses and record shops. These were all fat city. Translation, cool places to hang out. The 50s were the decade when dating like we've known it since, started. In those days, dating usually started as doubles going out. It made it safer and less awkward. Lots of times one of the couples was out on a blind date. After one or two double dates, if anything was going to develop, couples would move into single dating. Guys were expected to pick, guys were expected to pick up the tab at all times. In today's money, it might cost a guy about 60 bucks a month to date. This could cover two high school basketball games, six Cokes, three movies, two bags of popcorn, gasoline for the car, and an unlimited amount of TV dates. Not bad if you consider that the cost of a Coke at the movies these days is at least five bucks. Six of those and you're halfway to $60 already. 
Most guys thought of these expenses like an investment, though. And like any investment, some paid back well and... A 1955 issue of Seventeen magazine quoted a teenage boy saying this, When a boy takes a girl out and spends $1.20 on her, like I did the other night, he expects a little petting in return, which I didn't get. If the relationship got serious, like exclusive, they called it going steady. Pre-war, going steady was pretty serious stuff. It meant you two were well on the way to getting married. After the war ended, though, things loosened up a lot. You could go steady and not have that big expectation. Still, there were little rituals that meant you were a steady couple. The guy would give his girl his class ring or Letterman's jacket or sweater. If it was a ring, she'd had to wear it on the third finger, left hand. Going steady also meant that the couple was getting more intimate with each other. In lots of cases, going steady was like a pretend marriage. The next step in the relationship, if it ever got there, was an actual wedding engagement and then, finally, marriage. Since only about 20% of marriages ended in divorce back then, these were all pretty serious steps. Today... We're at about 50% in the nation, and where I live in California, the average is actually around 65% in 2021. Going steady, by these standards, has all the seriousness of an evening at the Hollywood Improv. 